Hello everyone, welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Harvard Kahl and I talk about how you can start, run and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called Hiram's Law. Let's get started. Removing features is surprisingly effective for a SaaS founder. But the surprise of how much less maintenance there is for the founder is only the first one of many and maybe the only surprise that you can actually anticipate. At Feedback Panda, we tried to quietly remove a feature that we had implemented to just make transitioning into using our automated browser extension easier. It was just an extra input field in the user interface, um, allowing users to enter a particular ID associated with their students. I don't really want to go too deep into the details. It was a little extra field that we had in there that barely anybody used. And once all our users had migrated to using the browser extension, we thought we'd just better leave it in for a while for stragglers and just in case something broke, and then we forgot about it. And months later, when we finally got around to removing the feature, and then did, we received several angry customer messages minutes after we deployed the change. Those customers had started using this empty input field to take their own notes. Those notes had nothing to do with the originally intended ID functionality. Teachers had just begun putting in information about what colors their students liked and what names their siblings had, just stuff that was not related to the ID field at all. And now that we removed the field, their precious notes were gone and they were upset. And they quickly reverted the change and soon after implemented an actual notes functionality. But this shock of receiving such enraged responses to the seemingly low impact removal of a transitionary feature, that stuck with me. And you'll never truly know in which unintended ways people will use your product. And there's a name for this phenomenon, and it's called Hiram's Law. And it's named after Google software engineer Hiram Wright. It describes how at a certain scale, anything you offer will be used in some way by someone out there. Here's the quote. With a sufficient number of users of an API, it does not matter what you promise in the contract, all observable behaviors of your system will be depended on by somebody. Replace API with product or business, and it'll hold up pretty well. Right? If there's enough people using what you're doing or what you're providing, doesn't matter what you tell them the features are, any usable feature of your system will be depended on by somebody who's using your product. And that is a problem because it will keep you from pruning your product every now and then. It's easy to remove a feature that nobody's using, right? You just cut it off and nobody cares. But once somebody depends on it, will you still remove it? Even though it allows your paying customers to do something that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And even if it's just one customer, it will feel like an action that is taken against the will of that customer or other customers out there who might also be using it. And But the fewer customers use it, the more it will bloat the interface for others. It's a hard choice. So... Yeah, it's an incredibly hard choice to make in the first place. If you ever run into this situation, maybe this will help. Just going to give you a case study here. Mozilla, makers of the Firefox browser, just removed FTP support from their flagship product in their ongoing effort to get people to use encrypted communication exclusively. And if you don't know what FTP is, it's the file transfer protocol invented in 1971. It's 50 years old. And It's used to transfer files over the internet, right? It used to be the way that files were exchanged. Um, It's been widely used to share files between computers before Google Drive or Dropbox were even on the horizon. And I I certainly remember using it a lot when I grew up. 
um, in the 90s and the, the early 2000s. That was just the way how files, large files, Linux distributions, and totally legally shared music and stuff were shared between people. And we, the browser was a usable tool for that. And now it's gone from the browser. And until the beginning of 2021, Chrome and Firefox could browse FTP servers and you could download files from those locations. Uploads have always been, been a bit tricky, but for distribution, FTP was a great protocol. But it had, it had always shown as age, like all the time. Encryption was not built in. The protocol transfers files in clear text, which makes it a huge security risk to use, right? People could do man-in-the-middle attacks or change the data or see what you're transferring. And even though there are extensions to the protocol to allow you to encrypt it with SSL, um, this SFTP, which is an SSH-based uh, FTP service, and then FTPS, which I guess is, is like encrypted as well, but it's not the same. FTP, the basic protocol, just like HTTP, is unencrypted. Hence, it was removed. And um, yeah, ultimately, security and having security built into their product was the reason why Google and Mozilla are removing support for this from their products. But imagine what being around for 50 years means for the adoption of a technology, something as basic as transferring files from one computer to the other. It'll be deeply ingrained into the workflows and processes of many, many businesses and institutions out there. And I do wonder how this will impact all those organizations that might rely on the browser to use FTP. Now they need to install something else. While there are several safe solutions out there, one of them, FileZilla, actually also offered by Mozilla, if I'm not mistaken, hard to change security policies might be in the way. And organizations will need to work out completely new workflows for this. This won't be fun, but they will figure it out because that's what you have to do to survive. And if Google and Mozilla can kill a feature that has been around for half a century, you can remove that UI component that only five of your 4,000 customers use once a month for a non-critical purpose. Don't worry about it, right? You can cut them off. A snappy product with a temporarily disgruntled customer is better than a slow and complex behemoth that allows every customer to do everything. Now, we only talked about what to do about people using your product in weird ways. But what about the products that you use in building your business? Could it be that you're one of those odd customers using a particular API in ways that maybe you shouldn't? Because, you know, I can complain about my own customers using my product in weird ways, but maybe I'm one of those for somebody else. And I've actually experienced that myself in building Permanent Link over the last year, my little SaaS for uh, book links. To ensure that my customers' links work, I need to regularly check if their destinations, their link destinations, still exist. And for that, I use a scraping service that's essentially an API. And not so well-documented API, too. I implemented it in a, I guess, reasonably optimistic way, thinking that it wouldn't change much over time, but it did. And I had to revise both my understanding of that dependency and my implementation of how to interact with it a couple times. I had assumed that error codes wouldn't change and would always contain the same data structure when I first implemented it. And that really was not the case. I was wrong. And it taught me to build an abstraction layer around my usage of that service that I could quickly change, but would still integrate in the rest of my product easily, which made far, far fewer assumptions as well about the API, about the responses. You know, it's much less um, opinionated and much more free, capable of dealing with slight changes now. It took some time to build, but I'm mostly happy with it now. For now, right? Because... At some point, the scraping service is probably going to change something that I assume to be unchangeable as well, because they didn't communicate it clearly that it might change. So 
I assume that it does stay the same. And it's a cat and mouse game, something you can't win. It's an, it's an ongoing thing. You react to changes and you create changes that others respond to. It's in constant motion and having to adapt to new circumstances never really ends. Such is the nature of software businesses in a quickly changing landscape. So be aware of the assumptions that you make about your dependencies and consider who you might be a dependency for and what wrongful assumptions you can prevent them from making. There are ways to combat this, right? There are ways to be clear about what people can expect your product to um, always provide and what things may not be part of the final product or the product in a year from now or something like that. You can have very clear documentation and you should have clear documentation. If you have an API product, it's pretty much clear. It's an API documentation. But if you have a SaaS product, just a, a service, your knowledge base and your customer service processes, the standard operating procedures that you may have in place, all of that is documentation that is customer facing in some way. Be as clear as possible with that. And if you have a, a product or an API, versioning and compatibility layers, something that um, helps your product to be consistent internally, but also allow it to, to be changed or used over time, either in the new or the old version still, Stripe is a great example of that. Their API, you can use a version like from 2019 today, and it will still work. And then you can upgrade to the latest version and there may be new commands, but it's still going to work. It's really nice to see the API versioning. So go to Stripe if you are an API developer and look at how they version their API and how on the tech block they talk about their the versioning system and the compatibility systems underneath. It's really, really interesting. And finally, I guess, extensive testing. There are ways of testing APIs to make sure that even with weird inputs, like there's chaos testing and, you know, like all, all kinds of... Um, what is it called? There are, um, there are ways to have like, yeah, indeterminate data that you don't, that is just randomly generated, thrown at your API so you can see when it starts throwing errors and fuzzy testing where there's no clear value, something in between. There are means to test APIs to make sure that even if people use it in weird ways, it's still going to work. And that is important. And if you want to keep the error surface as small as possible, remember Hiram's law and build an API or a product or a business that only does one thing really well and not much else. Because less complexity means less opportunity for somebody to use it the wrong way. And it's more likely that people will only use it in the way that you intended it to be used. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Karl, A-R-V-I-D-K-E-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. You can find my book Zero to Sold at zerotosold.com and The Embedded Entrepreneur at embeddedentrepreneur.com. If you have any questions about this episode, reach out on Twitter or send an email to arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me in the Bootstrap Founder podcast, please leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.